Well, cast your mind back uh, a little while ago, between the years 2001 and 2010. Some of you can remember back that far. There was one TV show that was on for the, the pretty much the decade, the first decade of the 21st century, between 2001 and 2010. And this show changed the way that TV shows were made and changed the way the TV shows were watched. What show am I talking about? Can anyone guess? It's a blank slate, right? There's so many TV shows. Okay, I'll tell you which TV show it is. 24. 24. Some of you remember that, right? Maybe most of you remember that. It finished in 2010, but um, it was a game changer, as TV shows go. And the most game-changing element of this show is, of course, the suspense. It is one of the most stressful shows you ever watch. I stopped watching after season two because I couldn't handle the stress. And my nails were bitten down all to the, the you know, and no more nails to bite because it was so stressful. But um, if you've never watched a show, and I didn't watch all of it, I just watched two seasons, I said, but basically over the eight seasons of this show, Jack Bauer, the main character, he was abducted by the Chinese government, became addicted to heroin, he saved the world from a corrupt president, and he was killed twice, well, apparently killed twice, and himself killed 225 people. That's a lot to happen in eight seasons. But what made it especially suspenseful was, and you probably know this, this show was in real time. Yeah, what do we mean by real time? Each season has 24 episodes, but each episode is exactly one hour, and each hour of an episode stands for exactly one hour of the story time. Every second of the show was one second in the story time. So basically, after one season, you've got just one day, 24 hours of story time. But as you were watching the minutes and seconds and hours tick by in the show, that was what was happening in the story. And that's why it was such a nail-biter, because time was going so slowly. And every episode, at the end of that hour, it would be like finishing on some sort of cliffhanger, which is why I couldn't handle the stress. And because of that, 24 was actually, and this is why it really changed the way TV shows were watched, is actually the first show that people thought, I need to buy the whole season. I need to binge watch all 24 episodes. Because you needed to know what was going to happen, right? Nowadays, we binge watch everything. But 24 really paved the way. Now, um, I'm telling you that because as we read Mark's gospel or his biography of Jesus' life, we actually see some of this happening in the last few chapters. You see, Mark's biography starts from the beginning of his public ministry and it really covers three years of Jesus' life. But it's not an even coverage because you see, in chapters 1 to 10, most of those three years is covered in 10 chapters. But now we're in chapter 11, we'll see that chapters 11 to 16 only cover one week. Time is really slowed down. You got that? It's a little bit like the, the show 24. Time slows down. Chapters 11 to 13 cover just three days of Jesus' final week. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, those three days. Then chapter 14 covers Wednesday to Thursday, the Last Supper, he gets arrested on Thursday night. And then chapter 15, just one day is covered, it's Jesus on the first Good Friday when he's crucified. And as we read, and we'll come to chapter 15, the time slows right down with seeing hours tick by. Chapter 16 is, of course, Resurrection Sunday. 
But, but do you see what I mean? One third, a bit over one third of this biography of Jesus is just covering one week. The last week of Jesus' life. Now what does that tell you? What does it tell you about what's important? What does it tell you about what Mark, his biographer, wanted us to focus on? Well, it tells you that these moments, this final week, are the most important moments. So every event, every teaching, every miracle, Jesus' whole life, and his life was short, 33 years, younger than I am today, all of that leads to the events of this final week, especially the final few days. Now, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, what we're seeing is that these are the most important events of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So even if you've been a follower of Jesus, a Christian for yonks, I want to suggest to you that what we'll see here in this final week will be full of surprises. So let's pray and let's get into this. Father God, help us engage in these three days of Jesus' final week. There are lots of puzzles, lots of questions, but we pray that we might really meet Jesus and see what he has to teach us even today, 2,000 years on. Amen. Um, I've got quite a detailed outline for you this week, and there's a reason why. If you looked at this passage in your community groups this week, you'll probably have lots of questions, and I'll hope that I will answer all of the big ones, but if not, come and chat to me later. But the, the outline is quite detailed for a reason. Let's go. Point number one, great expectations. Now, normally, you wouldn't think much about four pedestrians crossing a road at a zebra crossing, right? It happens all the time. Unless, of course, you're crossing at a particular zebra crossing at a particular road in a particular city, London, otherwise known as Abbey Road. Because this crossing was made famous by these four guys. Who are they? The Beatles. I know, I know. It's your parents, your grandparents. But in 1969, the album cover of Abbey Road, the album was this. And this was so popular not just the album, but the cover, that tourists all come to Abbey Road to get that photo. So popular, the local council now has a lollipop lady just to direct traffic so people are going to run over. It's so popular that one guy, this guy, will charge you four pounds to take a photo of you and your friends. Right? It's a pretty cool way of making money and people pay for it. Because here's the thing, when you take a photo at that road, you are stepping into history. It's not just any road not just any crossing. Now, I want to suggest to you that everything that Jesus does in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 25, is like that. It's not just entering into a city on a donkey, not just going to the temple and clearing it out, not just cursing a fig tree to wither, not just pointing to any old mountain and teaching about prayer and faith. Every single one of these actions, and this is maybe why it was hard to wrap our minds around it during the week in community groups because every single one of these actions is loaded with significance. It's almost like if you're, you and your three friends take a photo on Abbey Road and you show it to someone, but they didn't know about the Beatles, they'd be like, what's the big deal? You're crossing a road. But if you know about the Beatles, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I get what you're doing. Now this is what's happening with Mark 11. You've got to know the Old Testament. Every single thing Jesus does here is fulfilling something. So that's what we're going to do. So we're looking at, on your outline, you'll see there's big expectations. The first big expectation is about the Messiah, all right, or God's anointed special king. The second is the last day. So let's go. Messiah. 
Let me show you a couple of passages from the book of Zechariah, written a few hundred years before Jesus, and you'll see why Jesus coming into this city was so significant. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's one passage. How about Genesis 49? The scepter, the scepter is what a, a king holds to symbolize power, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of graves. So if you imagine, Zechariah and Genesis is the album cover from 1969. And now Jesus walks across that crossing on Abbey Road. With that background, you see everything that Jesus does in entering the city, right, is supposed to make you think of these prophecies. He's stepping into history. So that's the first, great expectations about the Messiah. It's what the Messiah, the King, was supposed to do. What about the last days? What do we mean by the last days? Um, the last days is the way that the Bible talks about the end of human history. God will judge the world. God will bring salvation to His people. God will make everything new. That's the last days. And the Messiah was supposed to appear in the last days, at the end of history. And where He would appear from, and we'll come to this passage later on, is from the Mount of Olives, a particular mountain. He'll appear there, and then He will carry out judgment and salvation. As I said, I'll come to that later. But there's no accident Therefore, that you'll read at the beginning of this passage we read in Mark 11, that Jesus will follow that route from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem because it's trying to signal the last days are here. I'll show you, I will show you one passage about the last days from Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. And it's the last book of the Old Testament, by the way. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Right? This is saying the last days will come when God will arrive at the temple. The temple is His chosen dwelling place where people come and worship and offer sacrifices and prayer. But He'll come to His own temple and He will purify it so that worship would become acceptable again. That's what Malachi is talking about. And so again, this is the background. This is the 1969 Abbey Road photo. Now with this background, you see what Jesus is doing again. He rides into Jerusalem like the Messiah was supposed to. And where does he go? He marches straight to the temple. He's playing into the Old Testament expectation that God would come to his temple. So all of this are great expectations. But point number two there's lots that's unexpected, and that's where the really interesting stuff happens. Now, the unexpected will happen over three days. You'll see this passage we read? It happens over three days. And this three-day structure of Mark is important for us to note because something unexpected happens on each day. So keep your thinking hats on because we're going to get into details now, and it takes a lot of concentration because this is pretty interesting stuff. All right, day number one. Jesus arrives on the road to Jerusalem from Jericho, and you probably know this story well. It's Palm Sunday, we call it. All on the way, um, he passes, passes by a village. He basically commandeers a donkey, all 
all right? And the process of it, we won't read it again, he shows how absolutely sovereign he is. He's in control, right? He says this will happen as disciples find events exactly as he says would happen. So he gets the donkey, he enters Jerusalem, and that Zechariah chapter 9 passage I showed you earlier, that prophecy is ringing in our ears about the Messiah riding in on a donkey. And so the crowd understand that. They're chanting Hosanna, which is a, a praise, but it really means save us. All right? They're calling on God to save them. The Messiah is riding in on a donkey. They've got palm branches. That's what's happening so far. So good. Okay, but then you'll notice in verse 11. So back in chapter 11 of Mark, verse 11, what does Jesus do on day one? He rides in. He goes to the temple. He looks around. And then he leaves. And that's it. Day one ends. That's pretty puzzling, isn't it? It's such an anticlimax. It's a little bit like, you know, Prince Harry has been here. Why is he here? For the Invictus Games. So imagine a couple of weeks ago, he comes to Sydney for the Invictus Games, has all those photo shoots. We make a big hoo-ha, a big deal about it, him and Princess Meghan. But then right before the games even start, he goes back to Buckingham Palace and just disappears. That would be like Jesus. You expect him to do something. He doesn't. He just leaves. Day one ends. When the king arrives in his capital, he comes to his temple. He just looks around. And then he spends the night outside of the capital in a small village. Now, why does he do that? Well, let's keep the suspense going. Day number two. So the next day, verse 12, Jesus walks to Jerusalem, enters the city again from Bethany where he stayed overnight. Another unexpected episode happens here. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree in full leaf from a distance. He goes closer and we're told in verse 13, right, that he wants to eat it, eat something, but there's nothing there, so he curses the fig tree. But we're also told in verse 13 that it wasn't the season for figs. So what's going on here? This is really unexpected, right? I don't know what you made of it when you read it earlier in the week if you're in a community group. I see my kids doing that when they were two years old. Right? They, they didn't get something they want, they chuck a tantrum. Is Jesus chucking a two-year-old tantrum? He couldn't get fig, uh, fig leaves, so he decided to enact a miracle and curse it. But was it possible that if he knew every single detail, the day before, remember, about where the donkey was going to be, what the owner was going to say, he knew all the details of getting that donkey the day before. How could he not have known a simple fact that everyone would have known that it wasn't the season for figs? Right, so what right did he have to even expect figs? And secondly, when he didn't get figs, when it wasn't in season, to be chucking a tanty. Right? What's going on here? Well, let's keep going. Verse 15, he enters the temple again, but this time he does do something, but it's not so good. He gets kind of violent. Right? He overturns tables. He stops everything. What's going on here? Now, just need to give you a bit of background of what is happening when we're reading about people selling and changing money, you actually need to know that they were providing an important service. You see, Jerusalem and the temple was a place where pilgrims came from all over the world, really, but particularly all over Israel. Now, if you're traveling hundreds of kilometers, you're not going to be bringing with you animals to sacrifice. It's just too much to carry. And so you had to go to the temple in order to buy animals to offer sacrifices. So these guys were providing a service and giving you that. Now the other thing was, 
the temple needed to have its own currency. So you weren't using impure, bad money that the Romans were using. So the temple had its own currency. Now, you needed to buy animals with currency, but in order to get temple currency, you needed to change money into temple currency. So you see everything that's happening there, the money changing, the selling of the pigeons and animals, that was all part of what made temple worship possible. It was necessary. Without it, there would be no temple system. So you see Jesus, in overthrowing the tables and clearing out the temple, he was actually disrupting everything. Everything would have grounded to a halt. Also, verse 16, it says, um, we have in our translation, merchandise. Um, the actual word is just vessels, containers. It's probably just meaning temple vessels. So the special bowls and containers that the priests needed for sacrifice, Jesus stopped them. Right? We're not talking about people coming in and selling souvenirs. We're talking about necessary vessels that made temple worship possible. So Jesus, in clearing out the temple, was actually stopping everything from happening. Normal stuff from happening. Necessary stuff from happening. All right, so that's day two. But then verse 19, you see, after that, he exits Jerusalem again. Spends the nice el night elsewhere. We got another really puzzling day. So why does this happen? What's going on with the fig tree? What's going on with the temple? Well, let me give you a key. The key is the structure. Right? Nothing happens by accident in Mark's wonderful biography. He's a very clever writer. So if you peek ahead into day three, which we'll come to later, we'll see that in day three, we'll meet the fig tree again, but the fig tree will be withered to the roots. And so you've got a structure here, fig tree, temple, fig tree again. Now, if you've been with us through the Gospel of Mark, you'll know that Mark likes to do this thing. It's even got a name in scholarly circles, and it's a particular food that people have for lunch often and bring with them to school and work. What food am I talking about? Two pieces of bread, something in the middle. It's called a sandwich. Right? In scholarly circles, it's called the Markin sandwich. He does it so much, he, he gets his own name. We've got a sandwich structure. Fig tree, temple, fig tree. And like any good sandwich, it's what's in the middle that counts. Who wants bread? The middle stuff's the good stuff, right? So the center explains the sides. What's at the center? The temple incident. What's at the sides? The fig tree incidents. So the temple is the most important part of the structure and the fig tree at the beginning and end of this three-part uh, three structure is some ways explained by the middle part, the temple part. In other words, the cursing of the fig tree isn't Jesus just chucking a tantrum. In some ways, the fig tree stands for or is related to the temple. Or Jesus clearing the temple has everything to do with his cursing of the fig tree. If you like, the cursing of the fig tree is like a parable that Jesus tells. You know, Jesus tells these parables with meanings, these stories. But this one's not just a verbal parable. It's an enacted parable. It's a physical parable. When he curses the fig tree, he's acting out a message. So I'll give you a couple of Old Testament passages that show you about fig trees. So in the book of Micah, chapter 7 on the overheads, you'll see this. What misery is mine, he says. I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. 
But what does he mean? The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. Micah is speaking on behalf of God. God is looking for fruit and he finds that there's no godliness. Verse 2. How about this one? Jeremiah 8, 13. God says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. Right? God talks about judgment in terms of being no figs. In other words, what we've got here in Mark is the Messiah coming to his capital, God coming to his temple. Remember fig tree temple. Fig tree is an illustration for the temple. But what does he see when he comes to his temple? Well, like when Jesus saw the fig tree, he sees something in full bloom, the leaves are out, but there's no fruit. Jesus comes into his temple and he finds his people and their worship, though it looks good from the outside, was completely fruitless. You see? Fig tree, temple. Just a quick one. What about the figs not being in season? I mean, was Jesus expecting too much? Well, here, a little bit of research will help you. And I'm really glad that Trevor's group did this. So Trevor will know all about this. Fig trees actually have two crops. Did you know this? The main crop, later in the year, in autumn, they're the figs that you often buy from the shops, the best ones, the juiciest, sweetest ones. And so Mark meant that it wasn't seasoned for the main crop of figs because that comes into the later part of the year and Jesus here was in spring, not autumn. But there's also an early crop that often sprouts in spring when the leaves of the tree come out after winter. They're smaller, not as good figs, but still edible and they're called breba figs. Ah, there you go. You didn't know that, right? The breba early figs were still edible. In fact, it was common for travelers traveling in spring to want to go and pick some of them because it actually, you know, if you're hungry, they're still good to eat, right? Mark chapter 11 happens in spring. It's not the season for main crops, but you can expect early figs, breba figs, and the indication is usually that the fig tree is in leaf. And so Jesus, like any hungry traveler, wanted to go to the fig tree, being hungry, hoping for early figs, even though it wasn't the main fig season, but hoping for some breba figs, but instead finding it's all for show, no figs. That's the background. Now remember, this is an enacted parable, a parable in action. Right? It's symbolizing that God has come to his temple because the fig tree is about the temple. And he was expecting to find something great. You know, no, Herod's temple, the temple of Jesus' day, built by King Herod, was pretty impressive, all right? Built over 40 years. Took a long time. At the center of religious life, it was this temple. Pilgrims came from all over the world. But you see what Jesus has found. He found it was all for show. It was all leaf, but no fruit, no substance. And that's exactly what Jesus says, right? Do you see verse 17? Look at that, those verses again. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house, my temple, will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. When Jesus comes to his temple, he sees it's not fulfilling its purpose. Remember, he is not clearing out, legit, he is not clearing out illegitimate trading. Everything that was happening there, the animals, the currency trading, the vessels, that was all legitimate. Nothing here says that they were being particularly dishonest. 
But yet he says, you've made it into a den of robbers. So if they were trading legitimately, in what way were they robbing? Who were they robbing? Well, the first part of verse 17 tells us, the temple's purpose was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so a fruitful temple would have been one that fulfilled that purpose. So Jesus is saying somehow the temple was not fulfilling the purpose of being a house of prayer for all nations. Now to explain that, I'm going to show you a model of a temple, of Herod's temple in fact. Actually, it's probably Solomon's temple. But anyway, um, you've got a temple, the temple was in concentric circles or concentric squares. Right at the center is called the holy place. Right, the holy place where only the priests and inside the holy of holies only the high priests could go. And they were all men, Jewish men. Then you've got the court of men, on that court outside, courtyard, and only Jewish men could go there. Then outside of that was the court of women, where only Jewish women could go. But then outside these walls, right, before the big walls on the outside was called the court of the Gentiles or the court of the nations, where if you were a non-Jew, if you were a female, anyone else, you could worship at that area, in that area. Now in verse 17, Jesus quotes, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, quotes a part of a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. We won't look it up, it's Isaiah 56. And again, it has to do with the last days. It prophesied that in the last days, God would open the doors of worship so that people from all nations... And the word nation is the word Gentile. All nations, Gentiles even, could come and worship. That's what was supposed to happen at his temple in the last days. But what happened when Jesus came to the temple that day? He finds that the very setup went against the purpose of the temple to be welcoming to all nations. Because where was all the commerce happening? With the animals and the currency and the vessels being brought in. It was happening, well, as you can guess, it was happening in the court of Gentiles, here. In other words, if you were a non-Jew and you wanted to come and pray and worship God, that was the only place you could go, but how could you do that? Where all these animals were here, where all the sheep were here, where all the money changers were here. You couldn't. You were crowded out. You were distracted. And so who was being robbed here? The nations, the Gentiles, they were being robbed of their opportunity to worship. That's what Jesus was angry about. And so when he cleared the temple, he was clearing not the whole temple, he was clearing the court of the Gentiles. He was purifying worship. He was allowing Gentiles to come and the temple to fulfill its purpose again. But you need to remember, it goes further than that, doesn't it? Remember the fig tree, fig tree temple, supposed to be related. The fig tree wasn't just pruned by Jesus. Jesus didn't just say, oh, this is a bad fig tree, but if we fertilize it a little bit, cut off a few um, leaves, prune it well, then maybe next spring we'll get some early figs. That's not what he does. He curses the fig tree and it withers and dies. So do you see what he's saying about the temple? The temple doesn't just need to be purified and fixed. The temple needs to be gone. That's what he was doing. He's not just disrupting and purifying. He's bringing it to an end, a grinding halt. He's saying this whole temple thing, like the fig tree, has all got to go. It's got to be withered to the root. And that's why after both day one 
And day two, when Jesus enters the temple, what does he do at the end of the day? Does he stay? Does he hang around? No, he leaves. Now that's pretty significant if you think about it. Jesus is saying that God's dwelling place is no longer going to be at that temple. Because Jesus is God in human flesh, right? You would think of all the places he'd love to be, it'd be in the temple. But when God in human flesh actually comes to his temple, he spends the night elsewhere. What is that telling you? The temple's no good. The temple is gone. It's not where you go to find God anymore. Because God doesn't want to go there. Which means a better replacement is coming. Which brings us to day three. You still with me? I know it's hard work, but let's keep going. Day three. Jesus returns to the temple, and on his way he sees the withered fig tree. We won't read that again. But then verse 22, he then teaches about faith, and he teaches about prayer. And this is really puzzling, isn't it? Because it's hard to take literally. Is Jesus really saying you can't have enough faith to move mountains? Because Jesus didn't even do that. He did lots of miracles, raised the dead, calmed the storm, but he, even he didn't move mountains. I've got a few friends who are civil engineers. They would love the ability to move mountains through prayer. It would make a lot of the road building easier. Right? Well, what's Jesus talking about? Is he just exaggerating? Are we to expect this? Well, the key is in verse 23, and people miss this. I missed it. The key word in verse 23 is the word this. This. Jesus is not just talking about any mountain that can be moved by prayer. Did you notice? He's talking about this mountain. He's talking about a specific mountain. So I wonder which specific mountain might he be talking about. Well, let me show you a map. There is the route from Bethany into Jerusalem. And the mountain that you would pass by and the mountain that he came from at the beginning of chapter 11 was no other than the Mount of Olives, which is about 800 meters higher than the little mountain that Jerusalem is on. Jerusalem is built on a hill. Mount of Olives, 800 meters higher. So if you were looking out to the east from Jerusalem, the mountain you would see would be what? The Mount of Olives. When Jesus, in chapter 13, will teach, we'll come to that in a couple of weeks, he will teach his disciples on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is really important. And so when Jesus was talking about faith to move this mountain, He's talking about moving the Mount of Olives. Not faith to move any mountain, Kosciuszko, the Blue Mountains. Faith to move the Mount of Olives. Now that has a background too, so let me show you the book of Zechariah. Again, Abbey Road, Jesus is fulfilling a particular picture with particular significance. Zechariah 14. Sorry, the type is a bit small, but I had to fit it on one slide. A day of the Lord is coming, or the last days, when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Horrible. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Skip a verse. On that day, his feet, he is the Messiah. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two, from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley for it will extend to Azel. How interesting. It talks about the mountain 
moving. Not just any mountain, but the Mount of Olives. What's it saying? Zechariah is talking about there is a day of judgment coming. It's going to come for the city of Jerusalem and the temple as well. Right? It's going to be a terrible day. We saw that earlier. But not everyone will perish on that day. There will be God's faithful ones. And the faithful will see God actually split or move the Mount of Olives to create a highway so that they would escape. Obviously, it's exaggerated language, all right? It's picture language. It's apocalyptic language, but that's the language of Zechariah. God is going to make a way by moving the Mount of Olives so that you can escape. And on the other side of escape will be a new beginning. Jesus is talking about that, with that in the background. He's saying there's a day of judgment coming for the temple. And we'll see that even more in a couple of chapters' time, in chapter 13. But he already enacted that when he cleared the temple. The day of judgment is coming for the temple. That sick and fruitless temple will be ended once and for all. But then what? Remember, the temple is the center of all of their religion, all of their worship, all of their teaching and their priesthood and sacrifice and forgiveness. It's like if for a Muslim you got rid of Mecca, what then do you do if you still wanted to worship God? How do you do it without a temple? Well, this is what Jesus is saying with Zechariah in the background. On that day, when the temple is gone, the faithful will trust in God in the midst of that destruction and they will express that trust in prayer. And God will miraculously move mountains to provide a new way. A way to escape judgment, a way to have a new beginning. Remember, there's all picture language. He's not talking literally. Zechariah wasn't talking literally, but he's using the idea of moving mountains to talk about God's new way. And this new way will allow you to worship and relate to God that no longer depends on a temple. And it's going to be a new way that not just some people, but all people could come to, not just priests, not just men, not just women who are Jews, but all the nations. God is going to provide a new way. That's what Jesus means by prayer that moves mountains. He's talking about Zechariah's prophecy, and he's saying this is going to happen if you trust in God. All right? Let me summarize. A lot of ideas there. Probably you want to process it. Let me summarize the chapter for you. Jesus, remember, he is the king. He comes into his temple with great expectations, but unexpectedly, he comes to announce the end of temple worship because it's fruitless. But more importantly, he is hinting that a better replacement is coming. When the mountains are moved, God will save his people. God will give them something better. A new way of worshiping, open for all people, to relate to God, to be forgiven. That's chapter 11. It doesn't tell us how that happens. But I want to fast forward with you a few chapters so that you're not left hanging. Because a few chapters on, in Mark chapter 15, we see three days later, we see how that actually happens. Let's give you a bit of a preview. Now we're on Friday. We ended on Tuesday. Skip three days to Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross. In chapter 15, we'll come to this in a few weeks' time, do you remember when Jesus is dying on the cross, what happens to the temple? Do you remember what happens to the temple? The temple curtain is ripped in half from top to bottom. That's a symbol of lots of things. One of the symbols is that you don't need a temple anymore. Because it's on the cross that the old temple and its worship gets destroyed. The old way of relating to God is gone. It's on the cross that Jesus opens up a new way for us to relate to God. 
a new meeting place between God and humanity where there's no curtains, no barriers, open to anyone and everyone to come to God for forgiveness and prayer because on the cross Jesus dies for our sins. It's on the cross that Jesus opens up that new way. It's on the cross that the mountain is moved. It's on the cross that the replacement for the temple comes. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this has been a very hard sermon to follow, I understand. But if you only get one thing out of it, it's what our church is always on about, what we sing about, what we pray about. The cross of Jesus is your opportunity and your invitation to also have your sins forgiven and to come to relate to God in a new way. So will you do that? Uh, you might know that the Chinese government in China is currently uh, clamping down on religion, especially Christianity, shutting down churches, evicting Christians from their buildings. Little do they know that it really doesn't matter to Christians because we're not tied down to buildings any more than we're tied down to the temple in Jerusalem, which is gone. True worship happens because of Jesus on the cross without the need for buildings. So let me come to my final point. Jesus and the end of religion. You see, for, Je for the Jews of Jesus' day, Jesus' actions, the fig tree, the temple, is actually nothing short of ending religion as they knew it. And I want to say this is the case not just for Jews, but for all people. See, Christians often will say, and it is true, that Jesus doesn't come to bring religion, but to bring relationship. Yeah, you've heard that before? Christianity is not ultimately about religion. It's not just another religion. It's about relationship with God. And that is absolutely true. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is true. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion out of Judaism. He came to clear away religion, symbolized by what he does in this chapter, in order to make something new. And the new thing is genuine, authentic relationship with God. Relationship and religion are actually miles apart. Now, one author that's helped us think a lot about this is a pastor in New York called Tim Keller. And he, um, over different publications, has shown, I think really helpfully, how different religion is from relationship with Jesus. And I'll show you some of that. Now, in case you're not a follower of Jesus, this is really important for you to know. See, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Relationship with Jesus says, I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. Religion says that your motivation for doing what you do is based on fear and insecurity. Relationship with Jesus looks different. Your motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. Relationship with Jesus says, I obey God to get God himself, to delight in him, to be like him. Yeah? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should know this. You might not have understood this, by the way. And if you haven't until this point, please get this. This is what Jesus has come to do. It's different to religion. But you know what? I think as followers of Jesus, we might be okay with the three things here. But there'll be other aspects where I think we will default back into a religious mindset rather than relationship with Jesus. I'm going to show you a few other things that Pastor Tim Keller has taught and helped me with. And maybe you'll see this applies to you too as a Christian. Religion says, when things go wrong in life, I am angry at God or myself because I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. Do you find yourself thinking like that if you're a follower of Jesus? That's religion thinking. 
kind of thinking that Jesus came to end. Because relationship with Jesus looks like this. When things go wrong in life, I struggle, not to deny that, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus. And that while he may allow this for my growth, God will exercise his fatherly love within my trials. See how different that is? And I wonder, Christian, if you've gone back into religious thinking rather than relationship thinking. How about this? Religion, my prayer life consists largely of petitions that's asking God for stuff, and it only heats up when I'm in time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of the environment. Relationship with Jesus looks like this. My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. By the way, good on you, Ben, for leading us in prayer. It's all about praise. That's relationship prayers. My main purpose of prayer is relating to and speaking to God. It doesn't mean I don't request things, but it's actually about building relationship, not just asking for stuff. I wonder where you sit on that if you're a follower of Jesus. How about this one? Religion says, my self-view swings between two poles. When I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to those who fail. But when I'm not living up to these standards, I feel insecure and inadequate and feel like a failure. Is that you? It's often me. But that's religious thinking. You see, relationship with Jesus looks like this. My self-view is not based on myself as a moral achiever because it's about grace. In Christ, I am simultaneously a sinner and yet completely accepted. I am so bad he had to die for me, yet so loved he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time. You're not swinging between two poles. Right? You're humbled as well as confident. That's relationship. One more. Religion. My confidence in my own performance for spiritual acceptance leads me to rely on God replacements for my main hope, meaning, happiness, and significance. My talents, moral record, personal discipline, social status. I become reliant on them. When they are threatened or lost, I become anxious, bitter, or despairing. Because the whole scheme of religion is about moral performance. And so you set up idols, God replacements, even though they might look Christian, might look good. Relationship with Jesus looks like this. I have many good things in life, but none of these good things are ultimate things to me. None of them are things I absolutely must have. So there is a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despair I experience when they are threatened and lost. And you could go on and talk through a lot of the other ones. But my point is this. Some of us need to repent from a life without Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's maybe you. And I hope you do that today. But you know what? Even more of us need to repent of a life where we've traded Jesus for religion. We need to repent of religion so that we can have more of Jesus. Because the path of religion, and in Mark 11, symbolized by the temple and the Jewish leadership, it'll ultimately be fruitless. It will lead you away from genuine joyful, assured, empowered relationship with Jesus. He came to get rid of religion so that we can have relationship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please help us not just understand intellectually the really tough bits of this passage, but get in our hearts how much you long for us to have a relationship with you that is joyful, that is real, that's based on what you've done for us, not what we've done. So free us from religion that we might pursue relationship with you. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Um, now, because of time, is it okay if we do this? Um, we might actually...